In war, the only thing worse than getting there late is running out of ammunition. No one has infinite stockpiles, and the drawdown in support of Ukraine has shown the need to boost the surge capacity of the defense industrial base. Now the George Mason University Center for Government Contracting has offered a list of ways to deal with that capacity deficit. The center's executive director, Jerry McGinn, joins me in studio with more. Jerry, good to have you back. Great to be here, Tom. And Ukraine really has shown what? That we just can't restock fast enough that if the United States was in a war, we could run out of ammo and and systems. Yes, it's shown that we have a real capacity problem. Beyond just Ukraine, you know, there's been a lot of unclassified war games and, you know, looking at uh, Taiwan scenarios and the like. And we run out of fighter jets in two weeks and, you know, missiles in a weekend. It's just, you know, so we have a real capacity challenge. Your report, which is very detailed, I guess you did it originally for the Navy, correct? We did it as part of the the Navy Postgraduate School Acquisition Research Symposium, their conference, yes. And and we looked at um, what we call it a build-allied approach for building capacity. That is, other nations that are allied with us take part in the industrial base and the industrial work to keep everybody stockpiled. That's correct. Essentially, one of the things that COVID has shown and support of Ukraine has shown is that we have kind of the same industrial base in a lot of ways. I mean, we already have kind of foreign companies that provide systems or subsystems to the U.S., and that's been going on for decades. But we have many of the same suppliers. So how do we kind of, if we more intentionally focus on spurring those kind of collaborations, we get a larger industrial base for the U.S. and for our partners. And allies. So that's how we build capacity is in, in spurring this further. Because when you go to the big shows, Sea Air Space or the Army show in Washington every year, what's always interesting on the show floor itself is how many foreign companies are there. Yeah. And who knew they also make missiles and helicopters and all of these things? Should it be that these maybe the, the number of models of things, the selection of missiles gets reduced and more people make the same thing for everybody? And therefore, that would be a surge in capacity. That is one approach, you know, where you essentially build less unique systems and, and kind of more scale. Some people have thought about that, but but that would be kind of truly revolutionary. We're not there yet, I think. And it would also stifle innovation if some yeah. Belgian or Australian contractor comes up with a better way to, I don't know, better fuse or a better right. guidance system. Why would you not want to have that on U.S. stuff? Right, exactly. I mean, so so there's, you know, there's some that argue that in some ways we build too exquisite systems. Our systems are too exquisite and maybe we should build systems that are kind of just good enough. And there's a place for that, but domestically, we're always going to build the, the best possible system for our warfighters. Well, also, there's the idea of exquisite systems means maybe fewer people. Yeah. And so you can throw a lot of people at something with inferior systems, but then you become like Russia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. No, and that's kind of not our gestalt here in no, the United no, States. It is not. And you focus in this report, you use a case history of the Javelin missiles and the HIMARS launching system. What is the story with those? Yeah, we looked at a series of case studies to look at, you know, because we've done this kind of international collaboration before, and, and, and we do it now, like F-35, even MRAP, and we look at, you know, what are the lessons from that so we can actually spur more collaboration in, for programs like HIMARS and the like. And so we, you know, we kind of come with some findings and recommendations that uh, – are focused on really building on the really positive environment that is today because there's a lot of energy behind industrial collaboration. If you look at the national defense strategy in the U.S., it mentions allies and partners 32 times, okay? But what does that mean? 
And the, But you see pragmatically in the National Defense Authorization Act, there's a number of provisions to help spur kind of working with allies and partners, really the Brits and the Australians and so on. That's a very positive sign. We're speaking with Jerry McGinn. He is the executive director of the George Mason University Center for Government Contracting. In the report, again, you cite several mechanisms that have been longstanding that support this idea of build allied. The Reciprocal Defense Procurement and Acquisition Policy Memoranda of Understanding. There's mm-hmm. a long set of letters for that the security of supply arrangements, and several others. Is it just a matter of scaling those up, do you think? Yeah, well, I think there's there's a couple things. Yeah, so the RDPMOUs, as you mentioned, some of these I call enablers have been longstanding, but they're not really well known. Now, the fact that, you know, when um, the U.S. and another country signs an RDPMOU, that enables our companies, our U.S.-based companies, you know, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, to, to, to sell into those markets. But it also enables companies based in those countries, headquartered in those companies, to be exempt from Buy America legislation and so on. But that's not really well known down at the program executive offices across the country or in the services or in Congress. There's much more that can be done to create more collaboration for companies to support the U.S. warfighter through using these vehicles. And then there's some like the National Technology Industrial Base and the Australia-UK-US Agreement, AUKUS. These ones are newer, and they could really use ways to get real hooks into real collaboration. And, and that's where we need like export control laws passed and the like. And there is the question of usage, I guess, or how much you need to build at a given time. Yep. So say in peacetime, and you need javelins to train with and javelins to recycle. I guess they get old if you don't use them and this kind of thing. That's very different. Restocking with a couple of suppliers seems relatively simple because it's predictable. Mm-hmm. In a actual hot situation of war and suddenly you're launching thousands of these things, that's when that base has to be there. And that's hard on companies if they have no demand queues and suddenly the nation is at war, God forbid, all of a sudden, hey, we need 10,000 a week of these things. Right. That's really the crux of the matter, it seems like. It, it is. I mean, you know, and there's a recognition um, in government and in industry that we're not building enough now, but sort of what is the steady state of the future? And it's, you know, it's really hard to find that balance because companies can build new factories uh, if the government pays them to do it. But but in three years, what if there's no demand? So then they have to shutter it. So it's just like finding that right balance of building capacity or building latent capacity through contract cleanse and the like is where the government's going towards. You know, that's why they've set up this multi-year procurement to focus on uh, a smoother demand signal for munitions. These kind of things are in work, but building capacity is really important. And that's where we have to recognize, and that's what the focus of the report is on, that it doesn't have to be just U.S. kind of companies. It can also be, like in the case of the Amram missile, there's a Norwegian company that is an alternate provider of the, the rocket motor engine. So there you have a latent capacity. You can grow Amram production like that. Is there a difference, which gets to my next question, is there a difference between the ordinance, if you will, and the system that launches the ordinance. If you look at like a Patriot missile or one of these HIMAR things, they look like gigantic wine crates with all the tubes and all the missiles come out of there. That's used over and over and over again. It's the missiles, the consumable. If you lose one of those launch systems or lose a series of those, some of them are as big as a giant truck. Right. And that's not something that anybody can just gear up and build. It probably takes a year to build one in the first place. Right, right. Yeah. And so, yeah, those longer lead items, it's always kind of a challenge of getting that kind of the, that the, how much is an enough challenge. But right now we're clearly not producing enough and, and we don't have enough on stockpiles. 
So who should read your report? Acquisition people, defense planners, everybody, all of the above? The broad government contracting community. I want those that on Capitol Hill, they're interested in it's like, how do we build capacity? And what role do allies and partners play? Those in the department, um, in, in uh, the State Department as well, you know, th- you know, grappling with these issues. And a lot of this, a lot of the report is to reinforce things that are already happening. But what I argue is that we, we need to increase the scope and the scale. We need to have an attitude a bit like uh, former Secretary uh, Bob Gates had on the MRAP, where it's really kind of, he really simplified, and this is one of the case studies in the report, he simplified the acquisition process, reduced the requirements, used existing foreign designs, and said, you know, and build multiple of them. I want multiple versions in the field in 10 months. And so what happened? They produced a whole mess of them, lots of different providers, a strengthened industrial base, and it was expensive, right? But So you can't do it everywhere, but we have to have that kind of mindset in how we think about developing and fielding systems given the threat that we have today. Any other good case histories? Well, I think the F-35 is a bad name, but I think it's actually a really interesting story because that is actually produced. Uh, you know, The parts for the F-35 come from around the world and around the US, United States. And there's actually three facilities where they have what they call the final assembly and checkout. The main one's in Fort Worth, Texas, but there's one in Italy and there's one in Japan. And so those F-35s roll off the roll of the assembly line in three different countries, and more than, more importantly for um, sustainment, the, but those foreign facilities are also used for sustainment and repair. So therefore, you've got a place where, say, we have a, a, a contingency in the Asia Pacific theater. Those 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 vehicles can be repaired. Um, aircraft can be repaired there, or can be pr- the ramped up production there. A latter day zero. <laughs> Jerry McGinn is director of the Center for Government Contracting at George Mason University. It's always great to have you in. Thanks, Tom. And we'll post this interview along with a link to that report at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today, I'm thrilled to be joined by Dr. David Wilson, president of Morgan State University. David has had a fascinating career and has garnered a long record of accomplishments from more than 30 years of experience in higher education administration. Came to Morgan State in 2010 from the University of Wisconsin, where he was chancellor of both the University of Wisconsin Colleges and the University of Wisconsin Extension. Before that, he held numerous other administrative posts in academia, including vice president for the University of Outreach, associate provost at Auburn University, and um, associate provost of Rutgers. And when we were talking earlier, too, you had just mentioned that you had a, um, a wonderful nomination at the American Academy of Arts and Sciences. And David, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Shane, it is indeed a pleasure uh, to be invited into this conversation with you. It's not in your um, in the short bio here, but I also know you served in some capacity in the Obama administration. Yes, I did, as a matter of fact. As I was leaving the University of Wisconsin, where I oversaw the UW colleges, I accepted the presidency at Morgan. And on my way into the presidency at Morgan in 2010, my name was advanced to President Obama to be considered as a member of his board of advisors on historically black colleges and universities. And so I accepted and served there for eight years during his two terms. Amazing. You've had a fascinating career at numerous universities across the U.S. How did you become passionate about the education field, and what are some of the biggest lessons that you've learned? First of all, I was made aware of a quote by Horace Mann, who was 
great 19th century educator who really gave rise to public education in the United States. And he was the first to utter the phrase that education is the great equalizer. And why that resonated with me was because I grew up in abject poverty uh, in rural Alabama, and there was no law in Alabama as I was growing up that required black kids to go to school. Uh, I was kind of shut off from formal education on a consistent basis. I didn't get a chance to go to school full-time until I was in the seventh grade. We lived on property there that were owned by um, the white landowners. And so the um, owner of the property, a white woman, would bring down to this little shanty that we lived in. She would bring Look and Life magazines. My mom, uh, she would make us as children plaster these pages of Look and Life magazines against the wall of this little shanty to keep the cold wind out. I would take a kerosene lamp and go around the walls reading those articles in Look and Life magazines, which is when I first came across the phrase of Horace Mann. Hmm. From that point on, I committed myself you know, to education. It's an amazing story, and two things occur to me. One, it's almost incomprehensible that this happened during our lifetime. You know, that, to me, is uh, almost shocking. It's also truly inspiring that you recognized that you could do more and sought out to do that and were successful at it. So when you think back on that experience, how has that informed, shaped, influenced your leadership position now as president of Morgan State? It, it had to have had an impact, but how would you articulate that? So if you go back to that Alabama environment, what I saw, it was just so many people, my own brothers and sisters who were 10 times smarter than I was. But my first five brothers were literate. They never got an opportunity to show the nation how brilliant they were. Therefore, I really took on this whole notion that my life had to be about ensuring that individuals who were drowning in potential and they didn't realize it would be in a position where they would realize it. I was never ever about positions that would enable me simply to replicate privilege. I don't care where you went to school. I don't care what type of family you came from. I think that's where sometimes we kind of get education wrong. Uh, We have institutions that want to define themselves based on how many students they don't admit. I'm about just the opposite, taking individuals who are absolutely stellar and don't realize it and bringing that into existence for them. You've had so many opportunities that you could do other things, perhaps, at um, larger organizations, but you're where you want to be on purpose, by design, for the kinds of reasons you just talked about, that it's, it's fulfilling. But can you talk a little bit more about that? There have been so many so-called top 50 institutions in the United States that have come aggressively after me. And, you know, I flirted with a couple of them, and I went home to Alabama because these two were very serious. And my family is brutally honest with me, and they keep me grounded. So I flew down and began to talk with them about these institutions that were coming after me, I was thinking they would be impressed. And when I finished, my youngest sister said to me, now, are you finished? Clearly, 
we are not understanding why you would even consider leaving Morgan. It just reassured me uh, that I'm living my purpose at Morgan. And it is joyful uh, to be at a place where you want to be versus being at a place where others think you should be. One question that I always have to ask, is there one leader or maybe a couple of leaders that have inspired you that have you mentioned Horace Mann. I don't know if, if that fits in this category, but what might be a couple of leaders that you remember that, that inspired you, that gave you a purpose, helped shape your life? In 1989, when I was selected as a W.K. Kellogg Fellow, we had to be introduced to leadership that was different in a lot of ways than the leadership that we had been exposed to. In February of 1990, uh, Mr. Nelson Mandela was released And that's where I wanted to go and meet Mr. Mandela. We had no idea that he would grant an audience, and he did. He granted an audience, and uh, Mr. Walter Sisulu did as well. So here I am, having grown up in Alabama, I harbored some anger toward the society there that kept me from realizing my potential and then kept so many others like me from ever realizing their potential. At the end of a conversation that we had, someone asked Mr. Sosulu, we're leaving this conversation thinking that you harbor no anger towards a society that locked you away for 27 years. Are we leaving with the correct conclusion? He said, I harbored no anger or bitterness towards a society that locked me away for all of those years because I and others like me knew that what we were doing was the right thing. If you commit yourself to doing the right thing, there should never, ever be any space in your heart for anger or bitterness. And that was transformational for me and why I respect and admire Mr. Nelson Mandela and Mr. Walter Sisulu today. That is a great story. And it, you know, with all the accomplishments through your life, I'm sure it had a great impact on your ability to to go as far as you have and you're still going. Well, uh, I I have a takeaway in in terms of leadership lessons I've learned. We would be well-served as a nation if I think we created these opportunities for young people at various stages to really, first of all, see the United States. And then we need that same opportunity globally. As a result, when you do that, you understand the history over here. You understand the culture over here. You understand, and you got to understand the world beyond an intellectual understanding. You want to think of your maturation in a way where your brain can never, ever, ever be hacked. <laughs> so that's sort of the way, that's sort of I, the I way that I kind brilliant. of see all of that. You that's know? <laughs> and um, being born in rural southwest uh, Kansas, flyover country, as they say, I can, I can tell you that your, your comments about travel and getting out, not just reading about it, but actually traveling, it, it really is important. It's absolutely critical for someone's personal development. I, I, I happen to think so. Well, Dr. <laughs> David Wilson, thank you so much. I love every single piece of today, but also your life story. It's really impressive, inspiring, and thank you for sharing it. Shane, today. thank you very much for inviting me to have this conversation with you again. And I'm Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. We'll see you next time on the Lessons in Leadership podcast.